Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of the May 19th issue of the Weekly Standard, which begins this week with a splendid essay by our own Andrew Ferguson about an exhibition at the National Gallery of Art of the work of Andrew Wyeth. Uh, The exhibition is called Looking Out, Looking In, which doesn't really mean anything. It's just one of those exhibition names they had to come up with. But it is a a splendid opportunity to revisit and reacquaint ourselves and to some degree reassess Andrew Wyeth, one of those American artists uh, whose uh, uh, popularity in his lifetime was greater with the public than with the academy, but as with some others, um, Norman Rockwell actually comes to mind, um, the academy has begun to catch up with the public, and it's a serious examination of Wyeth, who was, in my view, a very serious and brilliant artist, and thought of himself Interestingly enough, in the midst of the era of abstract expressionism, he thought of himself as an abstract painter. And if you look at his paintings, you can, to some degree, uh, see what he meant. But their interior life is what's interesting to me and what what Andy Ferguson talks about, I think, in a very interesting way. And if you can't get to Washington to see the exhibition, um, you uh, will be doing the very next best thing by reading... Andrew Ferguson's essay, which is called Terror in the Abstract, How Andrew Wyeth Saw the World and Himself. Andrew Nagorski, a journalist turned historian who frequently writes about uh, modern Europe, uh, reviews an interesting book called Mission at Nuremberg, the American Army Chaplain and the Trial of the Nazis by Tim Townsend. Um, This is a book based on the uh, letters, diaries, recollections of a U.S. Army captain called uh, Henry Garricky, who was a uh, Lutheran uh, chaplain during the Second World War, and I believe probably a German speaker. His name implies he was German-American. I think he spoke German. But in any case, he had a very unusual assignment at the end of the war. He was asked to come to Nuremberg when they were organizing the war crimes trials, which which started uh, the October after the war ended, to serve as um, Protestant chaplain to the uh, Nuremberg defendants. Um, I believe and I suspect all the defendants were Protestants. There might have been a couple of Catholics. I'm not really sure. But um, it's a it's an interesting piece because obviously the as we know the the Nazi war criminals who were put on trial in Nuremberg had differing views about uh, the, the war guilt of Germany and their own complicity in that war guilt. Uh, some of them, uh, such as Hermann Göring, who was ostensibly Hitler's number two. Uh, in effect, defended himself and and the regime to the very end, whereas others, such as <clears throat> excuse me, Albert Speer, famously came to believe, and in others as well, um, not just Speer, came to believe that 
um, they were guilty as charged and to some degree deserved whatever the Allies decided to do with them. And, and all of them, of course, had varying reactions to uh, Captain Garricky's ministrations to them. Some uh, returned to the religion of their youth, others embraced religious faith, others remained resolutely uninterested in, in what he had to say. Uh, interesting book and an interesting piece. That is followed by a uh, review of the selected letters of Elia Kazan, uh, which is published by Knopf and reviewed by a, a man called Malcolm Forbes, who's not that Malcolm Forbes. He's a, actually a Scottish writer and critic who lives in Berlin. But the letters of Elia Kazan, are, or Elia Kazan, I guess, um, are of interest for a number of reasons. First of all, Kazan is famous on two levels. He was one of the great uh, uh, theater and film directors of the 20th century um, on the waterfront, I guess, probably being his, his best-known film, but plenty of others you can, uh, you can name. And, of course, he was the first director on Broadway of such uh, pioneering works as, as uh, Arthur Miller's... Um, uh, Death of a Salesman, uh, the early plays of uh, Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire, and others. Also, he was he had been a leftist in the 30s, and famously in the 19, early 1950s, uh, testified about that before the House on American Activities Committee, which put him in a bad odor with a lot of the hard leftists of not just Hollywood but of America, uh, where he remains to this day. Indeed, I recall that. Ten years ago, in his extreme old age, he was given an honorary Oscar um, for his life's achievement. And even then, uh, there was some controversy about it. But the fact is that Kazan, no matter what you may think of his politics, and I suspect the vast majority of Weekly Standard readers uh, are sympathetic to his politics, nevertheless was a brilliant director. And his letters are, are really quite interesting because they, in very plain and almost colloquial, colloquial language, they give us an idea of what, of how directors work and how they start with a plain text and a bare stage and some actors and turn that into a, a, a production, make it, make the work of literature come alive. So it's a, it's an interesting piece about a very interesting man followed by an essay by a writer named John Steinbretter. Uh, not a review, it's a kind of uh, what I found to be a very charming piece. Steinbretter is an admirer of the German writer Hermann Hesse, who lived in Switzerland most of his adult life. And um, one, of his great, one of Hesse's great pleasures in life was taking extended walks, and so Steinbretter actually stayed in the house where Hesse lived in a little village called Montagnola in Switzerland. And he went on a kind of pilgrimage following in Hesse's footsteps. And he uses this as a way of talking about Hesse as a man and writer. Hesse was is one of those uh, great German novelists of the 20th century who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And then, because a lot of his novels had uh, themes related to Eastern mysticism and religion, he had a sudden and somewhat unexpected vogue among uh, my hippie friends in the mid-late 60s and 70s, which I guess still obtains to some degree. But 
Hesse, I've always thought to some degree, is a serious literary figure to some degree deserved by his popularity with the wrong kind of people. But John Steinbretter has written a, an immensely charming essay about it, which is followed by a review by David Aikman of a book by Kim Holmes, who is a well-known foreign policy analyst in Washington, entitled Rebound, Act to Great. You're always, uh, you're always being asked, uh, well, here we are in this, this predicament as a nation. What can we do to uh, restore America's greatness, to make us competitive again, to uh, re replenish our freedom, to uh, make us stronger and freer and better and wealthier? And it seems like a sort of simple and obvious um, uh, rhetorical proposition, but Kim Holmes takes it seriously in the sense that he looks at what are the qualities of American life, what are the unique qualities of the American system that have made us what we are, and to what degree have we lost sight of those, and how can we reacquaint ourselves with these first principles. An interesting idea, and I think readers will find it uh, equally rewarding, and certainly uh, anybody uh, uh, considering a run for the presidency or even any lesser political office would profit from reading it. Our final piece, uh, Modesty Forbids, it's, it's by me, but it's an appreciation of a man who died uh, last week named Albert Feldstein, not a household name, but it will mean something, I think, largely to baby boomers and beyond, but he was the editor of Mad Magazine between 1956 and 1985, and the Mad Magazine that I knew and grew up with in the early 1960s, I started reading it when I was about 10, and as often happens, I got a little weary of it after three or four years, and I stopped reading it after the age of 14 or 15 or so. But the Mad Magazine that I knew was very much the invention of Al Feldstein, who married the comic graphic uh, style of that era to the comic sensibility of such rising political uh, comedians of the era as uh, Mort Saul, Shelley Berman, Stan Freeberg, and others. A wonderfully satirical, mordant uh, magazine, which also was a master of the art of parody. I've always thought that the great strength of Mad Magazine was not in its, not in its uh, nonconformist or subversive attitude toward American life, which is a sort of common thing, but they would take movies and turn them, they would incorporate utterly uh, discordant and unconventional elements into them, or they would take plots, familiar plots and films, and populate them with people who simply didn't belong there, and, and the, the incongruity of it was what made it funny. I use as an, a couple of examples. Uh, one I'll just mention is the entire plot of West Side Story was rendered by the artist Mort Drucker, I can't remember who the writer was now, but Mad turned it into a feature called East Side Story, where they took the rivalry between the Sharks and the Jets and transferred it from the West Side to the East Side, in fact, the headquarters of the United Nations. And so you had these wonderful drawings of 
Nikita Khrushchev in a black leather jacket snapping his fingers and dancing with his fellow communists to these hilarious lyrics which the mad uh, writer uh, provided to the familiar tunes from the Leonard Bernstein musical. That was the sort of thing, that was the kind of genius of Mad Magazine of that age, and it was very much a product of the of the uh, twisted imagination of Albert Feldstein, who died last week in his 90th year. So on that uh, comic note, I end for this week, and thank you very much for listening, and look forward very much to talking to you about our next issue next week. Thanks again.